Every preacher has his uh, favorite wedding story. We have ours. We walked out of here in 1976 with diploma in hand and took a little church in central Illinois. We'd just been there a matter of a few weeks, and I got a call from Phyllis. We'll call her Phyllis Walker because that was her name. And um, she used to be a member of the church there, but she had since moved away. And, and she was wondering if I would perform the wedding ceremony for her and her fiancé, Howard Birdsell. Now, uh, Howard was in his early 70s. She was in her early 60s. And I tried to explain to her, I said, well, I'm just pretty new here. I don't even know the policies of the elders. So I said, but I'll tell you what, why don't you come out and we'll chat. Probably it's good that Phyllis called me because if I talked to Howard, I probably would have refused on the spot. I mean, to say that this couple was strange, and I don't mean to be cruel, would be a gargantuan understatement. I mean, they would make the odd couple look normal. You know what I mean? Anyway, we began the counseling, and against my better judgment, I kind of agreed to do the ceremony. And um, it was difficult because Howard spoke faster than I do, and he had just gotten new dentures. And they were kind of clicking as he would talk. Besides that, he said everything twice. And so, uh, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. I need to write some things down. So I said, now, Howard, I didn't catch your last name. What was your last name? He said, Birdso, Birdso. I said, can you spell that? He said, can you spell bird? Can you spell bird? I said, yes, sir. He said, can you spell cell? Can you spell cell? I said, yes. He said, put them together, put them together. Okay, Howard, anyway, right. Howard Birdsell, Phyllis Walker. And we began to talk about the ceremony and... Uh, we got to one point where he said, now, when we get to the rings, he said, I'm Indian, I'm Indian. I'm just using the expression he used in 1976. And uh, he said, I'd like us to slit our fingers together, rub blood together. Well, I, I looked over at Phyllis, and she's turning blue, and she says, well, Howard, if we're doing that, I'm not going through with it. And so that kind of iced that, you know, for us. I said, well, you know, I don't know, Howard. That'd be, you know, might spill on the carpet and everything. That's a little tacky. And he said, okay, but I want to say something. I want to say something. I said, tell you what, Howard, why don't you write it out on a three-by-five card, you give it to me, and we'll kind of check it to see if it's copacetic, okay? Okay, okay. Well, we got through the counseling session. Of course, it took extra amount of time because he said everything twice. But anyway, the day of the wedding comes. And unlike our chapel that has a nice center aisle, with, we had pews in the middle. And then we had two aisles and then more pews in this little building. So the day of the wedding arrives, and I come out and stand center stage here where God intends ministers to stand, you know. So Howard and Phyllis come down the aisle, we're just a few family members. I mean, we don't even fill the first, few, the first row. And they come down, but they stay over there instead of like over here. And I kind of like, hey. And so anyway, Howard thinks I want him up on stage with me. So he hops up here as they come over, to, and I said, no, get out of here. So I push him back down, and so I, sh shall we pray? So I begin to pray, and I hear coins and keys and everything rattling. And I'm thinking, oh, great, he can't find the ring. I thought, they never taught us about this at Ozark, but just be cool, don't lose it here. So I thought, I'll just keep praying. I did. For missionaries, uh, the Benevolence Fund, uh, anything I could think of, I pray. After I'd exhausted my prayer life, you know, I said, in Jesus' name, amen, and Howard left. He up jumps on the stage, he walks in front of me, goes back through a door that led to the baptistry, and farther back to my office, I hear all of his change and his keys spilled out onto my office desk. 
And then I'm looking at Phyllis, she's going, I don't know. And I'm just kind of trying to be ministerial, you know, holding my Bible. Well, anyway, he comes back in, we hear this. He got all the change back in his pocket. He walks back in, big smile on his face, with the ring in his fingers. Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, Howard. Anyway, so we get him down there, and I give my little sermonette, you know, I confess to you, I trimmed it just a little bit, you know. And finally, we got to the uh, vows. Now, I'm going to have Miss Carla play the role of Phyllis. I'm going to just play me. So anyway, uh, they came over, you know, like in the middle here, and I got to that point where preachers say, now remembering that the vows which you are now about to take are as binding in adversity as they are in prosperity, that these vows are to be broken only by death, will you join your right hands, please? Does that sound like a hard command? Will you join? You know, I mean, most people just kind of reach down and clasp hands. But this is Howard, you must remember. And I'm not kidding you. Instead of just kind of clasping hands, they kind of squared off at each other and went like this. You know, shook. <laughs> I'd never seen this before. And I was so tempted to say in that moment, in this corner weighed 135 pounds. <laughs> anyway, I didn't. So we got to the ring part. And I said, Howard. Would you take the ring that we know you have? And uh, would you place upon the wedding finger of Phyllis's left hand and repeat after me these words? So Howard takes her wedding finger of her left hand and he gets it to right about there. But you gals, sometimes on wedding days, your knuckles swell. Have you ever noticed this? Anyway, he can't get it. And I'm waiting to go with this ring, with this ring, either way or not. He can't get it. But Howard will not be defeated. So he began to shove like this, and he got down like this, and as God is my witness, this is exactly what he did. He took her hand, cocked it under his armpit, and began to go like this. He looked like he was shoeing a horse. Well, any ministerial dignity I had, I lost. And I just laughed, and I said, Howard, are you having some trouble? He looked up at me and said, <laughs> anyway, that was about it. You need to thank Miss Carla. She had to play Phyllis. So, so we, we get Howard and Phyllis. They go down at least the right aisle to get out of here. There's the, the, before the family's dismissed and come out and greet them, they're in the foyer. I, they're standing there. I'm standing there. And Howard comes over to me and says, this is your first wedding? This is your first wedding? I said, no, Howard, it's not my first wedding. I said, this is the first wedding since moving to Illinois. Oh, he said, you're always going to remember, you're always going to remember it. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not going to forget this for a long time. <laughs> oh, man, the funny stuff that happens in weddings. Our faculty could write a book of all the crazy stuff that happens at weddings. You know, I'm not very smart, but... Um, I've done enough weddings to know this. It's just never smart to criticize a bride. It's just never wise to run somebody's bride down. And, and you might want to remember that the next time you sort of take a shot at Jesus' bride. He thinks she's wonderful. He thinks she's beautiful. He, he died for her. And I am well aware in this audience that the bride of Christ 
has hurt some of you. And I am so sorry. But truth be told, in my sin and my duplicity, I have hurt her far more than she's ever hurt me. So, I guess I thought it might be right to play you maybe, I think, one of the greatest sermon introductions I've ever heard. It's from my friend David Erickson. The occasion is the North American Christian Convention. The uh, place is Denver, Colorado. The, uh, the date is 1999. And you'll recognize, even with the rather poor video we have, um, the dress code fits 1999. Did you know that Jesus was married? Jesus had a wife. We have discovered in the biblical record that Jesus did not remain a bachelor, as many have presumed. There was a point in his young life where he spoke words of commitment. Better or worse, richer or poor, sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. And then he said some words that I don't think you've ever heard in marriage vows before. And beyond death, I pledge myself to you eternally. I'm telling you, Jesus was married. He had a wife. John the Baptist knew it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3 and verse 29, he points them out in the crowd. There they are. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The book of Revelation also makes it plain. Speaking in chapter 18, the voice of the bride and the bridegroom will never be heard from among you again. I might be telling you something that's foreign to your ears today, but I'm telling you that Jesus was married. He had a wife. And if that's true, can you imagine the type of woman that Jesus would marry? She must be some lady. Surely you realize that Jesus is no malcontent, no leftover. He would undoubtedly be the perfect husband in every way. He must have been the most sought after of bachelors. Therefore, you'd have to assume that whoever he selects as a wife would have to be the perfect wife. It makes sense. If you've got a perfect husband, you'd have to assume that he would only select a perfect bride. We have seen her. We know who she is. She is a very interesting bride. She strolls down the aisle pulling a majestic train of honor. Her hair is delicately draped down her shoulders. A gentle veil covers her face. She walks with grace and dignity. Her head is held high, but not too high. She's a very special bride. She must be special because Jesus thought a lot of her. Watching them in public, you can see how he's always protecting her, always nurturing her, guarding her. Yet somehow he does not her. He gives her opportunity to grow. He's the perfect husband. He's so attentive. But I hear they don't always get along. I met someone the other day who let me in on a little secret. Jesus and his wife, they've been having some trouble. It appears that they've had trouble in the past. Now, I'm not one to gossip, but, but I think it's her problem. 
true? Is it her problem? Is it your problem? I mean, being a member of the bride of Christ. Is it my problem? Is it our problem? So this is what I came to say today in a sentence. God can hardly wait to consummate his marriage with his bride. And the key to that consummation is fidelity. Let me say that again. God can hardly wait to consummate his marriage with his bride. And the key to that consummation is fidelity. A scholar of some years ago, Paul Minear, New Testament scholar, wrote a book called Images of the Church in the New Testament. And he traces about 96 different things that were called, not the least of which is body, like Beth talked about, and family, like John will talk about next week. 96 different things were called as God's people. He calls bride a minor image. He's probably right. The word bride only appears 21 times in your Bible. If you add the plural, 23, only two more times. So in terms of occurrence, yeah, not a big metaphor, not a big image. But I think in terms of significance and substance, this idea of the church being the bride of Christ is a big theme because God will often liken his relationship to his people in the most intimate way. Boy, there were a lot of ways I could go about this. I thought about going philologically and just kind of unpacking some words like gamas and gamneo and gamneo and nufe and gune, and that's just the Greek stuff. And I abandoned that. Since exposition is kind of my default setting, I thought we could just take a text and kind of carve it up a little bit. Genesis 2, here's a big one. Ezekiel 16, wow, what a chapter. Hosea 2, bring Gomer in. Uh, Mark 2, there's coming a time when the bridegroom will be taken away. It's a violent term. John 3, David referred to John 3. I thought about John 3. It's a beautiful passage. John the Baptist just being the best man, trying to get bride and bridegroom together. He must increase, I must decrease. I thought about 2 Corinthians 11. Paul wants to present the church as a pure virgin to Christ. And who wouldn't want to cover Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. And then you get farther in that passage, and Paul says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Well, Paul, I thought you were talking about husbands and wives. Well, I am. Oh, okay. And it's kind of mixed up there. But I thought, no, I don't think I'm going to go that route. And I thought about doing this historically. I thought we could just look at the historical dress of it. You know, the selection by the parents. Not a bad thing. The betrothal stage. Now that's engagement on steroids. Okay. And then the consummation or the ceremony itself. And wow, even that bloody rag and all of those things. I thought about the Jewish tradition of the ketubah where there's a marriage contract and the bedekin, which is where the husband goes to the bride's home and he veils her for the ceremony. Or before they would ever come together, the mikvah where they took an immersion or a bath to get ready to have the pure marriage bed. But some of you know, I'm always a little concerned about how sometimes historical background becomes the foreground. <laughs> so I decided not to go that route. I thought we could do this parabolically. You learn some things about weddings and brides. 
by the dress of Jesus' parables. Matthew 22, 1 to 14, the parable of the wedding garment. Matthew 25, 1 to 13, the five wise, the five foolish maidens. Five took oil, five... But I kind of scrapped all those and I said, you know, I haven't done this for a while. I'm going to do this canonically today. I'm going to line up an Old Testament text that you've already heard. Our worship team read it, Isaiah 62. And a New Testament text, Revelation 19. And I'm going to look at this canonically. And maybe if we look at it canonically, we'll pull this metaphor together. So may I say it again? Because I think this is me trying to respond to Isaiah 62 and Revelation 19. Here it is. God can hardly wait to consummate his marriage with his bride. And the key to that consummation is fidelity. Let's start here. Bride is a metaphor of intimacy. You don't need a college education to know that. Bride is a metaphor of intimacy. Most bridegrooms want to get as close to their bride as possible. Ours wants to live inside of us. You see how sexual this language is? And frankly, it creeps me out just a little. Uh, my major color is embarrassment. And so when this kind of language approximates this, I get a little bit nervous. So I need to remind you that the cleanest mind in the universe thought up the act of lovemaking. So can I encourage you to get it out of the gutter and off the Hollywood screen and put it in the bed of covenant of marriage where God intended it? One time at a family gathering, I heard the women folk talking in the kitchen. And they were talking about a certain dessert. It was a cake. And the name of the... <laughs> the name of the cake was better than sex cake. I thought, holy moly, X-rated desserts in my own kitchen. But then I heard one of my daughters-in-law say, the cake is way overrated. <laughs> and down deep, on behalf of my son, I was thinking, love that boy. <laughs> love that boy. <clears throat> so does that describe you? Some of us, we just kind of want to get in the same ballpark with Jesus and, and still be okay. If we can just get on the playing field and be okay. Or, or, or do you want to get as close as possible? This term bride is a, is a metaphor of intimacy. This term bride is a metaphor of eschatology. Now, I'm going to need my coworkers and my fellow Bible teachers to, to help me with this. I may need a sanity check before this is over. But you'll have to tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. And, and that's what drew me to Isaiah 62 and Revelation. This is kind of where the Bible study part of the sermon is. Be, because I don't think we're married yet. Well, we are, but we aren't. I, I mean, we're engaged and... But we're, we're not really the bride. We're just, it's only in the now and the not yet sense. 
We're, we're the bride in waiting. We're in the church parlor. We're trying to get our hair fixed. We're trying to get the lipstick on. We're making sure the dress is just right and the gown. And there's an anticipation like, will this get on with it, please? It seems like it's been so long, 2,000 years. That's just a couple of days for God. The engagement's been long. Hmm. So, so I think of Isaiah. Oh, man. Things, gears shift a little bit in chapter 40. So much so that scholars do all kinds of things with that. And then you get to 42, and ultimately you get to, who doesn't like 52, 13 to 53, 12? A man of sorrow is acquainted with grief. He died for his bride. And then finally, 55. What preacher in the audience doesn't like Isaiah 55? That as the rain and snow come down out of heaven and don't return to God without doing what they need to do, so is my word which goes forth. Hmm. But finally you come to what Dr. Strauss at Lincoln used to call the greatest eschatological section of the Old Testament. I think he might be right. Isaiah 60 to 66, they're predicting something in the future. Arise and shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has come upon you, Isaiah 60. Isaiah 61, <laughs> Jesus read this in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And that sermon got him thrown off a hill just about. Hmm. And then you come to Isaiah 62 and this marvelous piece that was read, you'll no more be termed forsaken and your land will no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, listen to this, my delight is in her. Your land married, for a young woman marries, a young man marries a young woman, and so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. It just happens to come in one of the greatest eschatological sections. This is a metaphor of our future. And when you go over to Revelation 19, I mean, this whole thing is sandwiched in between the, 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 the trinity of evil going down. The, the, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth, the false prophet, if you will, and the, and the woman that sits on seven hills. They're all destroyed. And before the ancient serpent, the dragon is taken out and destroyed in a lake of fire that burneth forever and ever, you have the fourth hallelujah. Hallelujah only appears four times in the New Testament, all four in Revelation 19. And the fourth hallelujah is about the marriage feast of the Lamb. And the fine linen that we wear is the righteous deeds. Blessed Makarios, congratulations to those of you who are invited to this feast. See, it's future. Finally, the smoke of God's judgment all clears away in Revelation 20. And there's the dawning of a new day. And John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw coming down out of heaven a holy city, the new Jerusalem, as a bride, beautifully cosmeto, adorned for her husband. Maybe I'm all wet, but I think the metaphor bride is we're just kind of still engaged. If I'm right, we need to be praying Maranatha more often than we do. We need to pray, pray more often. Come, Lord Jesus, let's get this wedding going. 
because it's a metaphor of eschatology. Finally, it's a metaphor of fidelity. It's a metaphor of fidelity. May I just say this? We never have to worry about his. Because his fidelity is a matter of historical record. He proved it on a hill called Golgotha, and you can't change that. We are saved, according to what Brother Wilson taught us, by appropriating the grace of God by faith. But part of that is due to not just our faith in Him, but His faithfulness to start with. Saved by His own fidelity. Hmm. I guess that's still the key. I really thought today about getting some of my co-workers up here on the stage with me. But there'd be 13 of them, if I counted right. 13 graduates on our faculty from Lincoln Christian University. I guess you'd call that our little sister. We started in 1942. That school started in 1944. But um, several of us on the faculty, through the years here, have been Lincoln Christian Seminary, maybe the college, university trained. I made a list. I hope I didn't leave anybody out. Terry, Jim, Darren, Sean, Matt, Chad, Damian, Doug, Teresa, Chris, Shane, Gary, and yours truly. Now, I don't know that all of those 13 names that had some Lincoln background, uh, probably just the old geezers, Boland, Zustiak, and me, had Mr. Mills. Charles Mills. Maybe some of the younger ones had him, I don't know. But he was a big, rotund man and a deep, rich voice, and he taught Reformation history, church history. And about once a semester, you would hear Mr. Mills say he was kind of the Seth Wilson of that institution. And you would hear him with his deep, rich voice say, I love the church. And he did. His favorite song was, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer bought with his own precious blood. That song was written by Timothy Dwight, who was president at Yale. And when he was president, there were only five Christians in the whole place. And Timothy Dwight pretty much started the second great religious awakening in this country. And he wrote that hymn. I love thy kingdom, Lord. Wow. <laughs> Brother Mills proved his fidelity as a member of the Bride of Christ. He loved the church. He lived it out. You? Me? Um, I wasn't supposed to preach today. One of our trustees was supposed to do that. A couple weeks ago, when Isaac Shade came to the office and said, would you uh, mind filling in today? Uh, I think he said something like, we know we're not going to get to hear from you very often in the future. I, does it show that bad that I... <laughs> I said, Isaac, I don't know if I can get through it. Because February the 4th, 
is my spiritual birthday. I was born again 58 years ago today. And uh, it was on Sunday in 1962, February 4 was, not Tuesday. And Dad was planning a new church in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and we were meeting in just a little farmhouse, no baptistry. So while the congregation sang, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, I, I stepped to the front, took about two steps, little house, and I confessed Jesus as Lord of my life. And then we went home for dinner. No baptistry. Pot roast, potatoes, carrots. No, no Taco Bell then, you understand? And then at 2.30 that afternoon, down at First Christian Church in Council Bluffs, Iowa, my dad baptized me. Those were the longest hours of my life. I didn't understand much about the bride of Christ then, didn't understand much about the Holy Spirit then, didn't understand a lot of things. I just knew that I needed Jesus, and he said to do this. That's about all I knew as almost a nine-year-old boy. But that day, I was vowing something that I've only been able to figure out the ramifications of through the years. So when I come to the Lord's table every Sunday, I say, thank you for saving a little boy in Council Bluffs, Iowa, a long time ago. And that day, I became a member of the Bride of Christ. I wish I could stand here, Ozark Christian College family, and tell you, I've really stayed true, but that would be a lie. My sin and my duplicity, still with the forgiveness of Jesus, sometimes overwhelm me. So I don't know what you find, but from time to time I find it's good to renew your vows. And that's how I'd like us to end the service today. I hope this won't seem cheesy. I hope it won't seem corny. I've urged couples for years, record your ceremony every anniversary. Take out the tape and listen to your own voice and what you promised. So would you stand like right now? And I'm going to give you your vows. And I'd like you to repeat them phrase for phrase after me. Now, the first phrase, of course, you'll have to identify your... I will say it this way. I, Mark Robert Scott. Don't you say that because you're not me. Okay. So we'll all do that together. And you just insert your name. And then pause and I will give you the phrases, phrase for phrase, as we revow our commitment as members of the Bride of Christ to our Bridegroom, Jesus. Okay? It might help for you to bow your heads. I don't know. Ready? You say it with me with your name. I, Mark Robert Scott. Now you repeat after me. A member of the Bride of Christ. Of Christ. Take you, Jesus. Jesus. To be my husband. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death, as the Father is my witness, 
I give you my promise. And I would remind you all what God has joined together. Let no one separate.